Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. So Buddhism, without saying you have to believe Buddha as like a religious prophet or something, without having to do that, all the different sciences and arts and things that come associated with it, uh, that can be shared without having to follow a particular person or a particular belief system, by just being open-minded and more realistic about the world. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. Today we share part two of our mind-expanding interview with Dr. Robert Thurman. If you haven't heard the first episode, you can skip back in your player and listen to that right now, and then come back here, where Dr. Thurman picks up to share what is a healthy kind of ego, how you can be a Buddhist without belief, and his powerful vision of what enlightenment and nirvana might feel like to someone like us. So you're talking about this healthy kind of ego. Does that relate to Buddha nature? Could you talk about Buddha nature in a, in a way that makes sense? Yeah, sure. It relates to Buddha nature, and it relates to the view of nature. And this is my shtick nowadays, very much. Last decade, two decades maybe, but getting stronger and stronger. Which is that the main thing Buddhism can try to help the West is... I want to just say one thing, is that I follow Dalai Lama, and I learned from him, and I 100% 30 years ago agreed with him, that it is really wrong to act like somehow everybody's got to be a Buddhist. And he disagrees with religions that try to convert other people to their religion. And so he considers secular humanism a religion, Islam, Christianity, Taoism, any Baha'i, you know, like Sikhism, whatever you like, Hinduism. And he tried to make pacts with all of their leaders that he's met to stop converting each other and, and competing for market share. You know, Ashoka, actually, 2,300 years ago, he also said, don't convert each other. Try to convert yourself to living up to the best ideals of whatever you believe. And that way, show the virtues of your religion. And don't try to convert other people because it leads to conflict. 2,300 years ago, he wrote that in the Stone Edict, you know, the Emperor Ashoka of the Maurya dynasty in India. And uh, Dalai Lama totally is into that. And he's told three popes to share that message and try to get them to conspire with him, which they didn't agree to, of course, because they have this thing to convert everybody. You know, they think that's necessary. And he loves the rabbis, especially because they don't try to convert you unless you marry one or something, and then maybe you better for the children's sake. But otherwise they don't, which he admires that. He really does. So that's the first thing. So therefore, Buddhism is not going to make people Buddhist and it shouldn't even try because it, it really is kind of a, the harbinger of uh, the herald of Indic inner science, you know, the, the, the more mind science type of thing, the real one, not the fake Scientology crap, but the real one from India, highly developed over hundreds of years, thousands of years. And it can help 
seed that into secular humanism or any of the other religions to help people get rid of this being terrorized by nature. Because actually, if you look at cultural history of the last few thousand years, populations are usually mainly terrorized about nature. The high priest and the king tell them, be scared, be very scared. All the other tribes are enemies and they want to kill you. And all the animals are enemies. And the priest tells them, oh, the germs are enemies. Everybody's an enemy and only God can help you. And the king says, only I can help you and join my army and do what I say and follow the law, I mean, my law. So everybody's scared of it. And they think that it's really bad. And nothing is, is a blessing compared to nature red in tooth and claw. You know? And the idea of turning off the fossil fuel industry or whatever, no electricity, things would come and get us. You know, we're so scared. Whereas the Buddha view, Buddha's good news is nature loves you. <laughs> nature is fine. Any sensitive being, of course, is going to have pain and bang into things. It's going to be a problem. But the way that we have to get out of that is we die when we're tortured. We pass out or we die. The ultimate dissociation is to die. And then we get reborn. And if we do it with a good attitude, we can find a better rebirth than we had. And so the overview of it is it's a positive thing. And also, it's beginningless. There's infinite numbers of other beings. There are many beings who become enlightened and who therefore love other people. You know, the occasional saint, the occasional Christ, the occasional great rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, the occasional Krishna, the occasional Buddha. Those are just outstanding kind of sages and especially kind people. And almost all of the women are exceptionally kind people because they allow someone to live in their gut for a year, which mo most people don't no normally think is a really nice thing to have a non-paying tenant squatter in your gut here, but they allow it. And so overall, it's fine. And actually, the more open to it you are and the less scared you are about unnecessary things to be scared of, the more you can navigate and actually deal with the necessary things to be scared of in a more efficient way by being more connected to your fellow humans, more social, more open-minded, more friendly, more empathetic, listening to others and learning from them. And that actually you can navigate the relative world better the more open you are and the less scared you are. So we are the products and the European cultures in particular, Europe was relatively poor and people were relatively more violent, etc. So we're particularly terrorized, I think, by nature. And therefore, Nature is basically great, and we are the lucky residents, the humans, not because we're the only ones with a soul. Every living being has a soul in the sense of a subtle mind that, and body that goes on, so the subtle energy continuum that continues. But we are particularly more free because we're less hardwired, and we, we can use our genius to understand it. And by understanding it, we can maneuver more effectively in it and be more helpful to everyone. So that was his good news, you know, and this is nirvana, in other words, if we learn to use it properly. The first noble truth is not his discovery. Everyone knows about the suffering, and everyone in every culture everywhere knows about suffering. It doesn't take a Buddha to discover that. But the fact that there's a way of understanding the world and relating to it where you can be free of it, and you can even help others become free of it, was his good news, you know. So Buddhism, without saying you have to believe Buddha, as like a religious prophet or something, without having to do that, all the different sciences and arts and things that come associated with it 
uh, that can be shared without having to follow a particular person or a particular belief system by just being open-minded and more realistic about the world. In, in a way, you could say well, the materialists have been more realistic about the way matter and energy works, and they have therefore developed a lot of good methods to use reality more effectively to exploit it for human benefit. But, but they didn't apply that to themselves, so therefore they misuse it with greed and hostility, and they carry over their whole fear of nature into f nuclear weapons against other people and all this kind of wasted stuff, and then consumer greed polluting the whole beautiful garden that we live in. And so they need that realism to the way their mind works and, and master that, which they will, I'm sure, be doing in the next decades. And we have to do. We will not meet the cl climate challenge unless we re-educate ourselves to restrain ourselves and learn how our, our greed and, and uh, fear and things drive us irrationally. That's great. So you're saying our Buddha nature is our openness, our fearlessness, a sense of our connection and being part of nature. Exactly. And and actually, I used to think of it like an impersonal thing. But what I discovered more lately is what it is, is the fact that those beings who have become fully open and therefore fully empathetic, which is in theory what the evolutionary stage of a Buddha is, a being that has expanded to identify with everyone, their presence in us empathetically is our Buddha nature in a way. And all of them, not just this particular one or that one, but all the, all the many enlightened beings. Like, you know, Parinirvana, which people think of as Buddha's death, because Buddha leaving his Siddhartha, Prince, King, Shakyamuni body. Pari doesn't mean final, as it's wrongly translated. Pari means thorough or total. Hmm. So it just means that he, his sense of nirvana is here, expanded to be everything in his own experience, and he didn't feel the need any longer to connect it to that particular coarse body. And he was consciously present everywhere in his own idea. And supposedly there are innumerable beings like that. Mm. And therefore, all the Buddhas think they're me, poor things. They think so. Like when you empathize where you really are another person, mm -hmm. they are feeling that. And so their presence in me is the Buddha nature in a way already. Yeah. But that's blocked from my own awareness because I don't think that I'm some sort of wide open thing empathizing with everybody. To, to discover it, I have to expand my own sense of identity, identifying with more and more people, my being more and more altruistic. And I have my limits. I'm, I'm scared to do more than my limits. You know? Can you talk about that view of ignorance and narrowness and self-centeredness? You have some pretty funny ways of talking about this that I've really enjoyed over the years. And also the antidote. What is that antidote of wisdom or dependent arising? One thing we could, to start with, we could, maybe ignorance is not such a good word in the sense that avidya in original language was asatvidya. So it means a knowing of what is not the case, of what is not real as if it were real, in other words. So it's a misknowing. And there is a word in the Oxford Dictionary, misknowledge. You know, we have still alive is misunderstanding, misapprehension, these, you know, mistake, but we don't use misknowledge, but there is such a word, misknowing. And so it's misknowing that is, I think I know I'm just a limited so-and-so, and I know that I'm not the other person, and if what happens to them doesn't really bother me, and I can wall myself off from them, and they can starve, and whatever, they can get coronavirus, and I can stay, get a shot, and run around, and uh, don't need to wear a mask, and all this kind of thing. I can do all that, 
But that's because I misknow my reality, which is completely into connection with all these people. And so when someone gets a strong conviction, they think they're right. How rigid we get when we think we're right and we know, and especially when we know something that is not the case, we can get misled. All of these structures like racism, sexism, all kinds of things are forms of misknowledge. So the, the antidote to misknowledge, of course, is trying to see things, looking at them more carefully, trying to understand them. Initially, maybe receiving the encouragement from someone who knows a bit more than we do, that we can know and that we could be critical about what we think we know. It will not ruin us if we know something more deeply than what we do. And so then there will be lessening and lessening by degrees. It's a gradual process. It's actually a process of education. Like when you go to uh, take a course in biology, you don't think, well, now I'll believe in biology, and then you have mastered biology. It doesn't work like that. You have to systematically learn the steps and all the components and things and how to do the, the experiments, and that way you gradually understand it through a process of education. And same about yourself. We learn about ourselves. We learn that what we thought we knew was misknowing, and we begin to learn better, and we have this education, and heretofore, People have always translated what Buddhism is in practice as the three trainings, because we, that's our arrogance, because we got educated. We went to eight years of grade school, four years of high school, four years of undergraduate, seven years of some sort of professional thing, usually most of us in professions. So what is that? That's like 23 years and of education, and we're still miserable. <laughs> still don't know what's going on, and we worry all the time, and we're running around freaking out. Maybe we're being successful in something, but we're really upset about other things. So we think education doesn't help at that deeper level. It doesn't help our heart, but that's just because we didn't do heart education. Because mm -hmm. somebody told us that, oh, that'll lead to religion, and that's just you have to believe in something. But that's not the case. Believing, I mean, you can still be a total bastard believing in the best savior person that you can think of. And you can be a monster anyway and think, oh, he'll save me later, which I'm afraid is what we notice happening quite a bit with religion. And uh, on the other hand, of course, they all have essential different kind of education about educating the soul to be altruistic and loving and blah, blah, blah. And that's all really great. And all of them have that. All the ones that have lasted have that. There's not one of them that has lasted that has just taught hate. But lots of them have been mobilized into seeming to back hate by nasty high priests and theologians and Buddhologians and Hindologians and every kind of logian. The thing is, these are three higher educations, or let's say since higher education is professional school, three super educations in ethics, super education in mind, how to use the mind like an instrument, fabulous instrument, the human mind, and how to learn what reality is. Wisdom, meaning knowledge or science. You know. So that's what Buddhism actually is in practice, called the three higher of the three adishikshas. And the word shiksha in Hindi still is the word for the Department of Education, not the Department of Training. But naturally, there is training in any process of education, like you memorize some things to learn a language, you memorize some formulas to learn mathematics and things. So there's a training aspect always in education. But education is a wonderful thing, it's bringing out the innate human openness and sensitivity and gentleness, sociality, let's call it, that the human being has by their evolution to having become a being that interconnects with other beings better than their animals. Like they 
the tigress can't really tell the tiger he has to wash the dishes. You know, I mean, <laughs> they can't share in that way. You know, they can just growl and give him a swat if he tries to mess with the cubs. But you know, they can't really train the male tiger. But uh, we can be trained a little bit or educated a little bit. Here and there. And therefore, we can use that badly and be more destructive, of course, than any tiger or lion. But on the other hand, we can be much more benevolent and we we're going to be. So we're going to restore the garden that we have been privileged to live in here on this beautiful planet, for sure, very soon. I want to ask you a question about enlightenment. I, I heard you say a couple of different times this idea that once we're enlightened, we realized we were always enlightened. I wonder if you could explain what that means exactly. Do we have some fundamental misunderstanding about time? Maybe. Yes, I think we do. We miss no time like we miss no space and the solidity of objects and so forth, sure. And the speed of light, right? There's no more momentum and mo no more time. And it's an absolute, in Einstein's brilliant relativity thing because l the mass of the light supposed particle becomes infinite. So it's everywhere. So therefore, they can't have any more momentum. And that means it's every when also, in a way. It's every when and everywhere as well. The momentum has to do with time as well as space. Speed does, right? So many miles per hour, you know, or per minute or per second. So, yes, the reason I say that is this is a complicated thing. Because nirvana is said to be the absolute. Emptiness is the absolute. Theologians say God is the absolute. But they can't really say that rationally because anything that's absolute cannot affect the relative mm -hmm. or it loses its absoluteness, okay? So that means that when you experience nirvana, you have to be somehow accepting that it has always been the case. It's called the uncreated, meaning, and therefore undestroyed, meaning beginningless and endless but it actually is the reality of which the relative reality is made of. And there, of course, when you make something of something else, there are two different things. But in this case, our expression made of is not accurate because it is all this relativity, this idea. So therefore, there's no relative person who, in a dualistic way, possesses the experience of nirvana. So people who say, oh, I experienced emptiness, they are bullshitting. They, they lost consciousness is what they did which was a good thing to do, let themselves go in a way, bravely lost consciousness. But in a way, they can't experience it in the way you experience the wall over there, which is a dualistic thing where you're still you and you possess having experienced that. In a way, nirvana, you just sort of melt into nirvana. But the great thing is, you don't become nothing because it's not nothing. It's everything. So melting into nirvana means you experience yourself as everything which is completely in inexpressible. But I just said it wouldn't make sense either. And you have to therefore give a caveat that I'm just making an impression to open the imagination, but you can't open your imagination infinitely to infinity thought of as quantifiable or quantity because it negates the idea of quantity. And, it, and it's eternity at the same time, which negates the idea of time because you'll never reach infinity, right? On the other hand, you're permeated by infinity because you, as a finite being, have to be completely infinite because infinity cannot be excluded from every fiber, every atom, every subatomic energy in your being, or it wouldn't be infinite. It wouldn't be delimited at the frontier of you, finite, right? So it's very interesting. We say that concepts block us because they're dualistic, block us from a non-dual experience of ultimate reality 
and therefore freedom and blah, blah, blah. And it's partially true when we are stuck in dualistic concepts. So absolute and relative are the same. What emptiness means is the discovery that all these presumed absolutes are just projections based on a miswiring in the center of the being that there's something absolute about me, separate from my relative, but I can't find it. But then I'll imagine that it's there because I have a word absolute. When that word is taken and smashed flat onto the relative, then the relativity becomes absolute. Then that means your sort of wish for an absolute means that you have to live absolutely relatively in the optimal way, which means lovingly, openly, compassionately, totally not conceding to suffering of anybody. And you feel you're everything. You can't tolerate anybody's suffering. The point is, Buddha's absolute skepticality about all the presumed absolutes that people use to try to armor their own way of trying to dominate their sphere in culture or in relations or in the way they feel about themselves are all emptied out. And then you're just there interconnected with everything. And then you have to make the best of it. Mm. And then actually people will go to death over because they're dying for absolute God or they're dying for absolute no God or they're dying for the absolute nation or they're dying for absolute democracy or absolute communism or absolute fascism, whatever it is, they'll actually die over some concept. And so when you take the concept and flatten it right into relative reality, then you're dying to live. And in doing that, then you discover that's what you always do anyway. You have always done it. And now suddenly this relative thing is wide open. In other words, any particular way it is that, that I have to just bang into that wall or I can only eat this thing or I can only do that other or have to obey that, then all of those things are optional in a sense. And then things could be shifting levels of causation and shifting ways of relating and bringing in resources that you weren't open to before then something that seems to the person who's stuck in a rigid description of reality that might seem miraculous to them. I mean, the most miraculous thing is that you could be so blissful having discovered your true nature that even you could give your body up, let somebody hack it up, and you would feel all those things and it wouldn't stop your bliss, and yet you wouldn't dissociate. It's like you have been so much in the flow yourself in some aspect of your life I don't know when. Some people it's sex, some people it's when they're running, some people skydiving. I don't know when it is, but I'm sure you've personally done it. Everybody's had some flow moment where they banged their foot on something. They didn't bother with it. They felt it, and then they had an ache or a bruise later, but they didn't bother with it. But they didn't, not, they didn't ignore it. They knew it happened, but it didn't destroy the flow. So the enlightened idea of being in a flow like that, that always, and yet completely open to everybody's bumping into everything. And therefore really capable of trying to help those also discover their own flow. You know what I mean? That there is that evolutionary possibility to a, a rewirable creature like a human being who's very flexible in their wiring and can be badly rewired easily by Fox News, but could be rewired by proper education really well. And they have been endlessly. It relates to the time, you know, we had 500 years of horrible colonialism. So when do you think it can happen by a process of re-education where 
it might become a general consensus that the people who got conquered were the superior ones. And the people who did the conquering were the sort of the protection racket, the mafia with the guns and the bombs and the things who went around and, and wrecked the environment and enslaved the people here, hither and thither. And that the more gentle ones lost. And that's what we have to reach quickly, though. We have to now reach redefining civilization to be gentleness and true justice and tolerance, non-prejudice and cooperativeness and also elevation of women to having equal power in decision-making and so on. And we have to quickly get there. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think our own clever technologies of magnifying our greed and fear and anger have made life so unviable if we don't that we're doomed. What can each of us do, you think, on a practical level to help cultivate those qualities in ourselves and around us? Continue our education. Mm -hmm. Continue to learn. Read some great books, <laughs> you know, from a different culture. Read the Flower Ornament Sutra. Mm -hmm. Read the writings of Nagarjuna, you know, the greatest of all skeptics, you know, 27 critiques, critiqued causation, critiqued substance, critiqued intrinsic nature, and critiqued self, critiqued other, critiqued nirvana, actually, when thought of as a sort of place apart, critiqued uh, all these type of things. You know. Therefore, somehow, it's like the nihilist, actually. You know, the nihilists, once they're going to go into nothing when they die, which gives them their psychotic recklessness, culturally psychotic recklessness about the way the, they deal with the planet and with others and so on, because the results will be nothing ultimately. The only way they can really logically kind of stick with that is that they were already nothing. So inside, they're carrying around like a nothingness of self uh, subliminally without realizing it, which makes them very depressed, actually. But that's probably mostly subliminal to those who are distracting themselves with worldly success and activism and things like that. And they even misinterpret their flow state. And that's where they're close to their nothingness, you know. And then even if they misunderstand freedom as if it were nothingness. Instead of freedom being a negational opening to voluntary and joyful and blissful interconnection, which is what freedom really is. And it's not a null state. So they have to do that. Similarly, at the time of the achievement of the education where one understands the uncreatedness, the clear light, the transparency of reality, and, of the, and, and the full commitment to relativity, it's like direct experience and inference, conceptual inference, that duality also just is dissolved. And reason and direct experience become the same thing. It's not like you leap of blind faith off of reason and reject it as useless. It brings you to the point of its own self-transcendence, rather, and imminence, if you will. And then your reasoning becomes truly experiential in your ongoing thing, and you get smarter even in regular relativity, supposedly. And I hope it's the same. I hope I discover it another life. <laughs> I really do. Once we can transcend this dualistic way of thinking. By the way, one thing that's also very important about this is it helps skeptics evaluate gurus, which they should do, and cults. Because the kind of people who say, like, I'm enlightened, so you do what I say, give me a car, and I want this and that, the other, and do it, this, that person doesn't have it, actually. Because when you realize that nirvana is samsara, and you can't leave suffering unless you bring everybody with you, so you have to see them 
in the timeless level as already free too, and also be committed to knowing that for them they're in time and therefore you're going to help them over time because they think there is such a thing. You're actually beyond that time, so you see their future. But you see it could take much longer or they could suffer much more or much less if they weren't helped. So you want to try to help them. Hmm. So the real one is the teacher is the servant of the student, not the master of the student. Mm-hmm. The master teacher is the servant of the student. The bullshit teacher is the master of the student and bosses them around. The real teacher is the servant, but sometimes they might have to give some some recommendations in an authoritative way, but not as a domineering way, as a way of eliciting the the understanding of that option by the student, basically. Because it's education, bringing out of the student the freedom and the flow that they actually already have. Yeah. And we can't take these people who are using even Buddhism to terrorize people more. Yeah. That's not cool. Yeah, and what you're saying is we use our skepticism and our critical insight even with our teachers. That's what's really important. That's one of the most important places to apply it. Of course, although there is a really double quadruple bind there. They say say that you can't understand selflessness, Mm -hmm. which then gives you the strong relational ego when you understand selflessness because it's your pronoun. You learn to use the language which you create yourself all the time. So you can't understand that until you learn it from someone who already understands selflessness. And yet they can't understand it for you. You have to understand it. But you need to hear it from someone who did. So in a way, when you read Nagarjuna in a deep way, like as the Zen, in the wonderful Zen way, where they say you read with your body, not just your mind. <laughs> when you read Nagarjuna's 27 critiques like that, then you are meeting a person, Nagarjuna, who does understand that. And he's offering to you these pathways of critique, of skeptical critique, to liberate you from reifying your concepts into things and projecting them so that you can't have experience beyond what you expect to experience. And since you've grown up in cultures that terrorize you about experiences mostly bad, mostly something to be resigned about, you you therefore trap yourself in a world of suffering. Mm, Yeah. So that, that's, that there's a double bind like that. So it doesn't mean that teachers, good teachers, are not tri- really important. They are. As we know, in, in any kind of education, you, it's massively better to have the help of a good teacher. So to circle back with what you were saying about enlightenment, that even enlightenment and unenlightenment and nirvana and samsara are dualities that we need to transcend as we move toward that state. Yeah, yeah we need to transcend projecting them as intrinsically real or absolutely real as they seem to be. But in a way, then we can use them creatively. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Because there's a wrong idea about enlightenment, the end of enlightenment, the cry of joy and enlightenment is like a big duh. <laughs> Not the case. <laughs> Not the case. Not the case. See, I like skepticism. Well, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time, and I think we can wrap up. They say enlightenment and emptiness are beyond words, but your extremely creative use of word gives us a taste of it. So, One thing I want to say is there are some people in my profession, my trade, my guild, who have had a big eureka lately that we're not going to say enlightenment anymore. <gasps> we're only going to say awakening. It's going to be awakening. You can't say enlightenment. That's, that's really wrong, in my opinion. Of course, that's just, we'll debate it. I'm, I haven't had a f- formal debate with any of them. But I think it's really wrong because... The European Enlightenment was to break from religion 
to get to observing nature, which started religiously, actually, and they were going to look at the book of God in, in his creation of nature. So it started, actually, religiously breaking from the church. But the spirituality of science was to be materialistic. And therefore, they call that the Western Enlightenment, which is good. But the point is that the Buddhist Enlightenment includes that. And it includes an awakening dimension as well, sort of spiritual awakening. But you cannot proscribe the word enlightenment usefully. That's, that's not good. The enlightenment word really is an enlightening word. It's really good. And my friend Tom Cleary, the great translator from Chinese and Japanese who lives out there on the West Coast, who is the greatest in his generation, whether the academics will admit it or not, he uses a wonderful word for bodhisattva that I think he uniquely uses, and I use it sometimes, which is enlightening being. Mm. I would call it enlightening hero or enlightening heroine of bodhisattva, because I like sattva to be a hero rather than just a being. But it's not wrong being. But he uses enlightening, which I love, because that means enlightening the self and enlightening others, you know, bodhisattva. I like that. But yeah, I think that's really great. He doesn't get enough credit, that guy. Thank you so much, Professor Thurman. We really appreciate you making the time to talk with us. This is really wonderful. I do. I really like it. Thanks for joining us in this incredible conversation with Dr. Robert Thurman. Our podcast is a nonprofit organization, and we offer all our episodes and classes free and ad-free. If you've benefited from this and other episodes, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to give cash, credit, Bitcoin, and Ethereum on our webpage at skepticspath.org. If you're on an Apple or Google device, we'd be grateful if you took a moment right now to review us in your podcast app. The reviews help new people discover our podcast, which is free for all and free from ads. If you'd like to deepen this conversation, please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, where we can be found under the name Skeptic's Path. We also have a private meditation discussion group, and you can join that by also following the link on our website. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Butler for producing this special episode and conceiving and creating our interview series. We hope you have a wonderful day.